Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Kathy, a protester, born and raised in Hong Kong, telling us about what's been going on in Hong Kong, including the violence since the month of June. Paige Pate, criminal lawyer, prominent criminal lawyer from Atlanta on the Jeffrey Epstein story and the fact that two prison guards have been criminally charged, the guards who were responsible for Epstein when he committed suicide. Dwayne Bratt, political science professor in Alberta on Bill 22. And we spoke with Michael Taub, columnist, former Stephen Harper speechwriter about the changes in the federal cabinet. Brian Peckford, former Newfoundland Premier, also spoke to that in the new position of Minister for the Middle Class. And Dr. Gigi Osler, past president of the Canadian Medical Association on the inherent dangers of vaping. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I was looking at a headline in the Guardian newspaper that ran on Tuesday. Hong Kong has declared war against its young people. Uh, there's so many headlines and so many stories that have developed since uh, since June when uh, the issue and the concern that we heard internationally was uh, about ext- the extradition law in, uh, in Hong Kong. There's another headline and another news story. Hong Kong bill passes U.S. Senate as lawmakers aim to crack down on human rights violations. So the United States has passed a law supporting, at least uh, protecting uh, the, the, uh, the protesters. And uh, the new Chinese ambassador to Canada has pointedly told Canada to not intervene or not interfere or not speak out uh, or follow the U.S. lead. Uh, I don't think we're necessarily going to listen to what the Chinese ambassador tells us to do. I've been in contact with and I've exchanged direct messages with uh, a young woman in Hong Kong. She's born and raised in Hong Kong. She's a student. She's a protester. She's been actively involved in the protests since it began in June. Her name is Kathy, and she joins us live from Hong Kong, where if you're looking at Eastern time, it is now 5.42 a.m. on Sunday, and they're about to have elections in Hong Kong. Kathy, thank you very much for the time. Uh, First of all, how are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, Thank you very much for reaching out to Hong Kong protesters. Uh, I'm honored to be heard by people in Canada. It means a lot to us. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, the protests, as I understand it, and correct me anywhere if I make a mistake or fill in anything, if you feel it needs to be said, say it. Uh, the protests began against the extradition law. Can you explain to us yes. what that was about? Remind us was what that was about and what caused it all to accelerate. Um, so the extradition bill would allow <clears throat> uh, extraditions to China of not just Hong Kong, 
but anyone in Hong Kong saw a crime that was committed in the mainland. And the reason why it concerns us is because we think it effectively removes the firewall between Hong Kong and China's judicial system. And Hong Kong is prosperous because of our um, common law uh, judicial system and because of our rule of law. So that was the starting cause. Um, but the reason why it's escalated is because of the because it reflects um, deeper and also more structural reasons. So for one, I think that it's problematic um, that the government uh, tries to push forward a bill um, that is deeply unpopular. And there, and without the protesters, they would have done it uh, because the LegCo is unrepresentative of Hong Kong people. Um, the reason why that is the case is because 29 out of 70 seats in total are traditional functional constituencies. Uh, which is a fancy term for special interest groups that are overwhelmingly for Beijing. So that was one of the uh, reasons why people are so frustrated. But the second reason is also because um, of, you know, our sense of, you know, unfairness. I think the problem with the current government is always a lack of accountability. Um, there's no accountability for the chief executive. There's no accountability for accountability officials, um, not accountability for the police. But just protesters are held accountable. So I think that these two are the major reasons why it escalated. Okay. How would you describe the situation now in Hong Kong between the police, between the Hong Kong authorities, and the student protesters? And let me ask you that first. How do you how would you describe the situation between the two sides? Um, I saw this uh, Guardian uh, headline uh, as a and and it says that Hong Kong is a de facto police state, and I agree with that. Uh, because the Hong Kong police have been operated with impunity, and that is exactly the problem. I think the problem here uh, right now is pretty dire, I would say, uh, because the police know that no matter what they do, um, they're, um, the police chief would, you know, will cover up for them. Um, they will say to, you know, say to, your, uh, say to the Hong Kong people at a press conference that they're, they're doing their job, you know, like perfectly. And so I think it's a de facto um, police state, and I think it's, one where there's um, this, you know, humanitarian crisis as well. So at first, I was really worried when they besieged the Polytechnic University campus. Um, the reason for that was uh, so. Apart from threatening to arrest everyone uh, with rioting, they also arrested um, the emerg- uh, the medical and emergency uh, ser- uh, service providers there. And it is actually a direct, you know, it really contravened the Geneva uh, con- um, Convention, and we were very worried that a massacre would happen. How worried are you, and what indications do you have, if you have indications, that Beijing will get involved directly? Um, I think it's quite unlikely that Beijing would get involved, you know, by deploying its uh, PLA. I think it's not necessary. The reason is because um, the police are pretty much you know, like operating with impunity, as I've said uh, repeatedly. Uh, I mean, they've already started using less ammunition on protesters. So I don't think that there is an actual need uh, for um, Beijing to step in unless the situation really escalates out of control, not out of the police force control, which is unlikely because they have the best weapons, you know, they have water cannon trucks, they have less ammunition, and there's no way that protesters can beat that. So what is it the protesters, what is it, you're a protester, you're a peaceful protester, uh, what is it the protesters want? What do you want out of this? How does? How do you want this to end? Uh, I think if you ask any protester, they will tell you the five demands. So let me reiterate here. Uh, firstly, it's withdrawal of the unpopular amendment bill, which is the only uh, demand that the government agreed to. 
But the others include, you know, retraction of the right characterization, release of all arrested protesters, uh, setting up an independent commission of inquiry uh, to investigate into police brutality, and lastly, uh, genuine universal suffrage. Um, I don't, uh, I cannot reasonably predict, you know, like how it end, uh, because the government is unresponsive and, uh, frankly speaking, unaccountable uh, to Hong Kong people as well. So I don't know, but we'll persist um, unless these five demands will be met. How many uh, students, how many people are, is, is there an estimate as to how many people are actually involved directly in the protest uh, and, and, are, and are, are engaging in it as you have done since the very beginning? Is it a large number of Hong Kong residents, students, and, and even more than students? Uh, yes, uh, the movement actually enjoys pretty broadly support. Um, so the first time I uh, came out to the street uh, was the one with the largest turnout. So two million Hong Kong people came out to protest. Uh, for the record, we only have seven million people in Hong Kong. Um, so that's a pretty much large turnout. And last time, they only have 500,000 people who came out to uh, protest, you know, like 15 years ago. And then the chief executive resigned afterwards. So, you know, two, a mil- two million turnout is a pretty shocking. But I would also like to point out that the movement isn't just a student movement. We enjoy broad-based support. Um, so, for example, there are a lot of, you know, middle-class, um, middle-aged people who are willing to drive protesters out of protest zones. Uh, we call that we call those Dunkirk operations, and a lot of them actually open their homes to conceal protesters um, when the police are looking for them. And most importantly, uh, when there is this, you know, polytechnic uh, university siege, I mean, tens of thousands of people ran out to street just to in, uh, in an attempt to rescue them. So I would say that we really enjoy a broad-based uh, support. Okay, hold on, please. I'm going to have to take about a three-minute break here. Don't go away. We'll come back to Kathy, who's joining us from Hong Kong. There are elections coming up in Hong Kong, and they all begin uh, really in a matter of hours. And from what I understand, all 31,000 police will be uh, involved in somehow um, patrolling or, I don't want to say supervising, maybe that's what they're doing. We'll ask Kathy the uh, the elections that begin in a matter of hours. The uh, Hong Kong... Courts have ruled, by the way, as you may have heard, that wearing masks for protesters is not against the law, and that has evoked anger in Beijing, where they say that uh, that the protesters should not be masked. Kathy, uh, tell us about the elections that are coming up, the civic elections in uh, in Hong Kong. What's the uh, what's the focus? Um, so, uh, in Hong Kong, there are three layers of elections. So, district council elections are, uh, I would say, most useless, but then it's Consider, um, it's considered the most representative already uh, because electoral, you know, like only half the seats are directly elected, uh, sorry, elected and then chief executives, only 1,200 people get to choose the chief executives. But then for district councils, there are geographical constituencies and so they are comparatively more representative. Although, uh, I would like to point out that uh, one of the candidates, uh, Joshua Wang, has been disqualified uh, because of his political views. So, I think that while district councils are not that useful, they are not that powerful, uh, I still hope that more people can go out and vote because I think that a lot of us will treat that as a referendum on a government's performance. I think that we want to send this very clear message to them that they are not having a popular mandate, but the final majority isn't on their side yet. Why did you get involved? Uh, in, into a protest? Yes. Um, 
So for the record, I didn't wholeheartedly support um, the Occupy Central movement right then uh, for other reasons. Um, but then, uh, so, af- so, uh, so after the Occupy Central, I've, uh, I've witnessed firsthand how our freedoms are being eroded every day. Um, how not only like more than 100 you know, protesters were prosecuted by the government, I think that the civil society generally does regress. Uh, for example, um, the freedom of press in Hong Kong is actually decreasing, um, and there's also a chilling effect um, on you know civil society because anyone who has any resemblance of being a leader uh, would be you know targeted in some way. They are either arrested, you know, conflicted, present, attacked, etc. So I do think that because I've seen the consequences of you know Occupy Central failing, and therefore I think that this movement has to succeed. Uh, uh, um, so if the protesters are asking for five demands, and in my opinion, I think they are, I think a lot of them are actually quite reasonable. So I think the government should accept um, these demands. So this is the reason why uh, I keep going. Are you ever afraid when you're protesting if you're out on the streets? Because we've heard that the authorities can be very direct, and 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 and, and we've seen we've seen the. Uh, the, the videos and we've, we've heard the stories. Are you ever personally afraid? Have you been in a situation which was personally frightening for you? Yes, I've been in those situations. So, for the record, I'm a peaceful protester. And so, I mostly attend, you know, like protests and rallies very peacefully. But then there's also another thing that I do is I also put up uh, posters uh, in the neighborhood so that more people know um, about what's happening in Hong Kong. And uh, so we were nearly putting up posters, um, you know, in a public area. And then they, I don't know who took off the police, but um, I think three vehicles of that police uh, came just to arrest us. And, but in the end, we were fine because we ran fast enough. So, uh, so that was that. But it was personally frightening as well. And you say there were two million people out of a population of seven million in Hong Kong who came out and are mm-hmm. and, and, and are protesting against the current reality? What what do you want to what do you want to share with us? What do you want Canadian listeners, my listeners in Canada and the United States, and people listen online uh, in in many parts of the world? Um, what what do you want to share? I've asked you a bunch of questions, but what do you want to say? Uh, so I would want to say that um, so please uh, do follow the news on Hong Kong. I think. You know, understanding is always the first step. Uh, I would recommend Hong Kong Free Press because uh, it's directly against, you know, political censorship. It relies on only direct leader support and uh, advertisements. Um, so I think so. that was that. And also, I think, um, you know, I think, you know, the Hong Kong Human Rights uh, and Democracy Act, uh, which is unanimously passed in the U.S. Senate, and also there's only one vote against it uh, in the House of Representatives. So I do hope, you know, that other countries maybe can consider, you know, doing something similar for us. I think that, you know, for Canadians in general, uh, if you have followed the news uh, on Hong Kong, please do try to show your support, you know, through various ways. For example, contacting your representatives uh, to tell that you're concerned or attending peaceful rallies, you know, in Canada uh, to show your support. Um, that will mean a lot to us uh, because the current government in Hong Kong is just a puppet government. It will not respond to us, and therefore we need that kind of international support. We need that kind of moral support. So you need the federal government of Canada to make a definitive statement supporting the students? Um, I think 
So I think it really depends on whether you agree with what we've been doing, whether you think our um, demands are, re- are reasonable. So I think that, you know, the first step is always understanding what's happening uh, in Hong Kong. So I think that, you know, for a start, following the news on Hong Kong would be great um, already. Well, I thank you very much for joining us. Um, I, um, I was glad to be able to communicate with you. And you agreed to come on the show. I think that uh, that takes courage to speak out as you have. We're not identifying you other than uh, using a first name. And I wish you uh, I wish you all the very best. And uh, we'll st- I'll stay in touch with you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for reaching out to us. It really means a lot to us. Thank you. All right, Kathy. You take care. Be careful. Okay. Bye bye. There's Kathy. Um, she's a young woman in. Uh, in Hong Kong, very thoughtful, huh? Uh, very, very, very thoughtful um, presentation. I had a little difficulty at times because of the uh, the audio quality, but we'll stay in touch with her. And that uh, that's an uh, it's a very difficult situation in in Hong Kong when you look at that uh, photograph that leads the Guardian story. Hong Kong has declared war against its young people in Mao. A lot going on. There's a lot going on. Um, Jeffrey Epstein's prison guards criminally charged with falsifying records. Toval Noel and Michael Thomas are accused in uh, a grand jury indictment of neglecting their duties by failing to check on Epstein for nearly eight hours on the night he committed suicide. Um, Tova Noel uh, has uh, said she's willing to cooperate with investigators. So there's a lot to come here. There's a lot more that's I think is going is going to be heard. Uh, there's certainly a public demand for it. Paige Pates is a criminal and constitutional lawyer based in Atlanta, former chairman of the criminal law section of the Atlanta Bar Association. He he wrote a CNN op-ed in August, the puzzle around Epstein's suicide, and we spoke with Mr. Pate in August about that editorial. And, um, Mr. Pate, here we are again, uh, end of November, and Jeffrey Epstein's in the news again because his prison, his guards at the prison in New York have been charged. There was always going to be, thank you for the time, by the way, there, there was always going to be a follow-up to Epstein's suicide in jail, was there not? Well, I, I expected so. I mean, the Attorney General, Bob uh, William Barr, made it very clear that he was going to have an investigation conducted to get to the bottom of it. And Mr. Barr said uh, uh, in August, investigators found, quote, serious irregularities, end quote, at the jail, and the investigation had been slowed because some witness was, witnesses were uncooperative. You're a criminal defense lawyer. You're one of the best in the United States. What do you hear when you hear the attorney general say that? Well, he's right, but he should have looked earlier. I mean, I I run into these problems in the Federal Bureau of Prisons all the time. It is a dysfunctional organization. Uh, It is negligent beyond belief, and it is only because this case was so high profile that it finally got some attention. But the Attorney General only needed to look at some other institution to find the same problems in the federal prison system. So no surprise. No surprise at all. No surprise at all. Are you surprised that charges filed against the two guards uh, at this point? And by the way, in Canada, we don't have grand juries. How does that work in the United States? Well, a grand jury is a formal proceeding where the federal prosecutor goes in front of about 20 citizens who are called in 
to hear evidence. They only hear one side of the case. There's no defense lawyer. The defendant is not present. It's just the prosecutor and the federal law enforcement agent basically presenting their case to the grand jury. And if they vote um, in a majority to render an indictment, which is a formal charge, then the person is indicted. Okay. And they are, right? These two, the two are. Yes. Okay. And, and, and it's important to point out they're not indicted for simply failing to check on Epstein. They're indicted because they falsified the forms that said they did check on him. So they lied on these forms and, and acted as if they had done the checks that they were supposed to do when, in fact, they were sleeping, they were looking on the Internet, they were doing anything but their job. So you know what goes on in people's minds immediately when we hear this is, oh boy, they, they were they were paid to step. You know, this is what goes on in people's minds, as you know. They, they were paid to step aside while somebody got into that cell and murdered Epstein because there were some extremely powerful people involved who didn't want him alive. That's the that's the immediate, I, I guess, reaction, visceral reaction among many. Well, it, it was, but as you saw from my opinion piece for CNN, I took the opposite approach because I've been to these did, facilities, yeah. and I know how negligent and sloppy these guards tend to be. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the problem was the guards and not some nefarious person operating in the background. So what do you make of the fact that the lawyer for one of the guards is arguing the guards are being scapegoated, low-hanging fruit? Does this... Are we going to hear a guard say things potentially that might surprise us in order to just get those charges removed or dealt with? Well, I don't think they're going to get out of the criminal charges completely, but it would not surprise me if the guards attempt to point the finger at the institution of the federal prison system and how poorly managed it is, how short-staffed it is. All of that is true. And that's not going to surprise criminal defense lawyers or other people that have to deal with the federal prison system. But to the general public, they may be surprised to see just how bad things are on the inside. Um, I was just looking at a story yesterday that uh, was published in the New York Post. And the headline is, Ex-U.S. Attorney Calls Epstein's Suicide, Quote, More Than Coincidental, End Quote. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, it's more than coincidental. You have to be concerned. Is there an element within the uh, justice system, the broader justice system in the United States that has concerns that Epstein may have been murdered? Well, I don't hear any practitioners say that, you know, this is likely to be some conspiracy we're unaware of. But if you look at the facts, it is hard to believe. I mean, the guards that were responsible for checking on him were apparently about 15 feet away from his cell at the time he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. They literally wouldn't get out of their chair to look around the corner to see if he was still doing okay, as they were required to do. So the circumstances may suggest some overall conspiracy or some underlying conspiracy, I just think it's simple negligence, but it's criminal because they then falsified the forms to try to cover it up. Yeah, and if they, if if anything nefarious had gone on in the uh, end, ending of Epstein's life, they would have had to be complicit in whatever took place because, as you say, they were fifteen feet or so away from the door of the cell. Absolutely, yes. Um, can you remind us what Epstein was was facing? What were the charges he was facing? Well, he was facing multiple counts of sexual assault against minors, uh, not just in New York, but in many different places across the country. And there were also investigations internationally. He was 
basically charged in federal court in New York, and that's why he was in New York, uh, on interstate travel to commit sexual assault against minors. So they were combining a lot of different allegations into this one federal case in New York. Um, what are the, uh, what's the potential punishment for these guards? This particular offense is making a false statement to the government, and it can carry up to a five-year prison sentence. So oh. it's not a lot of prison time, uh, but at the same time, it, it's considered, at least from the guard standpoint, to be excessive punishment because they see other guards doing this all the time, but because they weren't guarding a high-profile prisoner, those folks aren't getting in trouble. They're not going to jail. Yeah. That's going to be their argument. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure you understand that part of my brain is saying there's more to this than than uh, objectively. You're, you know, the picture you're painting is the objective one. But the part of my brain, and maybe it's because I've seen a lot of movies and television shows and watched a lot of whodunits, part of my brain is saying there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, and, and you said, though, I, I remember our conversation in August when you said when, when Epstein, given the profile that he had, the life that he lived as a billionaire, and then was facing potentially spending the rest of his life in a prison cell among a community of, of inmates who would have done, been very happy to end his life because he would have been a prize inside those prisons. Um, I, get, I get both. both I mean, I'm hearing two voices. Maybe that's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> but there, were, there are powerful people who benefited, potentially, we think, from Epstein's death. We think. Well, I, I won't argue with that. I mean, I think that is ultimately true. It does appear that the investigations are ongoing. There may be other people who will later be arrested on similar charges relating to this kind of scheme that uh, Epstein was operating. But I just don't see any evidence that anyone else was involved in, in his suicide. I mean, there are cameras all over this place monitoring the hallway near his cell. All of that evidence has been reviewed. And the only thing they see is nobody going to check on it. And I just find that totally consistent with my experience with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So have you had a similar situation to this one? I've not had anyone commit suicide in federal custody, no. But I've had inmates left in this special housing unit unmonitored for days at a time. I'm familiar with a case involving the DEA where they left somebody who was not even charged yet, but he was just being detained for weeks in a facility without checking on him, and he ended up filing a lawsuit and recovering a lot of money. So the negligence is not, this is not the first time they've been found to be negligent. Okay. Uh, can you spend a couple of minutes more with us? I'd like to ask you about Prince Andrew, and more specifically about uh, the young woman who says uh, he's sexually assaulted her three times and what her options might be under, under U.S. law. Can you spend a couple of minutes more with us? Sure. Okay, thank you so much. We'll take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk some more with Paige Pate. He's a con criminal and constitutional lawyer based in Atlanta, former chairman of the criminal law section of the Atlanta Bar Association, and in August, he wrote a CNN op-ed, and the title of it is, and you can still find it, uh, just go online or go on CNN's website, The Puzzle Around Epstein's Suicides. On the issue of Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew, and Prince Andrew's situation is becoming more tenuous as uh, what he said to BBC is being uh, very closely looked at. He's been he stepped back from his duties. And now today we have information that his office has been closed in uh, Buckingham Palace. I'm speaking with Paige Pate, criminal and constitutional lawyer. 
in Atlanta, former chairman of the criminal law section of the Atlanta Bar Association. And again, he uh, wrote the CNN op-ed in, in August, The Puzzle, about Epstein's suicide. Mr. Pater's been uh, actively um, tweeting on uh, on Epstein and involved in similar situations, well, involved situations uh, over the last couple of months. You can follow him on uh, Twitter, as I do. Uh, so, um, Paige, on the, uh, on the issue of the Prince Andrew, and what I'm curious about is whether um, Virginia, Virginia Roberts Geoffrey can pursue civil action against Prince Andrew based on, well, we see a photograph of him with her, his arm around her. He says he never met her, doesn't recall meeting her. And there's a lot been said that people are questioning now, is there enough there for at least civil action to take place, if not criminal action, or is there a statute of limitations issue? Well, the statute of limitations for civil actions involving, say, anything from sexual assault to simple battery will depend on the state where the incident occurred. A lot of states, uh, New York is one of them, Georgia is now one of them, has eliminated the statute of limitations for civil actions relating to sexual assault. So as long as there's sufficient evidence of an actual sexual assault, that lawsuit can be brought basically at any time when the evidence is sufficient to justify it. Uh, have you heard enough from Prince Andrew in that interview to either make you curious or, or make you feel like there's, there needs to be follow-up? Well, yes. I mean, obviously some of the things that I think he said seem, seem to make not a lot of sense, right? I mean, no, exactly. Visit that, yeah. it, it, it certainly deserves further exploration, and I think that's going on. I mean, just because Epstein is dead and there's no criminal case pending against him does not mean the investigation is over. I think the federal prosecutors in New York made that very clear, that they're continuing to follow leads, they're continuing to interview witnesses. Now, where that investigation leads, we'll have to find that out. But I think he's clearly at least uh, a person of interest in that investigation, given his contact with Epstein. Let me just play you a few seconds of what he said. Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming? Yes. Unbecoming? He was a sex offender? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm being polite in the sense that he was a sex offender. That doesn't work, does it? No. No. And especially in this day and time, I mean, the, the atmosphere in the United States, at least, is such that you can't excuse any behavior that's remotely um, sexual assault or sexual misconduct, you know, boys will be boys is not a defense to these charges. No, and some 20 women, 20-plus 20 women, testified against Epstein in a hearing which took place after his death. Um, where does that lead, and does this have the potential? If they're going to investigate Prince Andrew, does that, you know, potentially... Does that also offer the opportunity for other investigations to start, based on what some of the other women may have said? You know, I mean, that's an interesting question. Simply making an allegation of something that may have occurred many years ago can be enough to trigger an investigation, but it's not going to be enough to bring criminal charges. An investigator looking into something that happened 5, 10, maybe even 20 years ago, is going to need to find some corroborating evidence before they bring criminal charges. And the question is, at this stage, you know, do we have anything more than photographs or memories or maybe notes? 
that's what the investigators are going to be looking for. What a horrible mess. What a terrible situation. It really is, isn't it? Oh, indeed. Indeed. And, and we, we hear a lot about this case because of the high-profile nature of the people that were involved with Right. But, you know, make no mistake, there are cases like this, there are incidents like this, that have gone on in the past, that continue to go on today, that perhaps don't get the attention that they deserve. Because there's no billionaire involved, and there's no right. prince involved. Um, it's so it, so it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Right? That's right. disturbing, too. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us, and I um, and always appreciate speaking with you. Thanks. Thank you, Roy. Enjoy. All the best. Paige Pate, criminal lawyer in Atlanta. That's a good point, huh? Uh, this one's getting so much attention because of the high profile of Epstein and the incredibly high profile of the son of the queen. It's, um, but there are situations where terrible things happen and they don't get the attention because there's no high profile. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Joining us uh, on the program, political science professor, from Mount Royal University, uh, Dwayne Bratt. He's also the author of Canada, the Provinces, and the Global Nuclear Revival. Professor Bratt, good to talk to you. Hey, Roy. Nice to chat with you again. So, uh, as a tutorial for everybody in this country who's listening, who's been hearing about this Bill 22, and whenever we hear ethics commissioner now in Canada, everyone's ears open because we had ethics commissioner federally engaged with the Prime Minister, but what's this Bill 22 about? Can you give us a bit of a tutorial? So the, the clip that you played from, from Jason Kenney, as he said, this is a consolidation of the election commissioner's office with the chief electoral office. It says that this can save $200,000 a year over five years. But I don't think that's the reason for the shift, um, because a whole bunch of unprecedented items went through. To be clear, what, the, what has been going on is there has been a sustained investigation of the 2017 UCP leadership race that Jason Kenney ends up winning that later uh, leads him to become the premier of Alberta. Uh, it involved the, what was called a kamikaze candidate, a guy by the name of Jeff Calloway. Uh, Jeff Calloway was recruited by elements of the Kenney team. He was given talking points, advertising, a timeline, and his job was to attack a rival by the name of Brian Jean. Who's been on this program, would, by the way. Yeah, and then he would pull out of the race at the last moment and endorse Jason Kenney. This all came out in a, in a series of, of scoops uh, from a number of uh, media outlets in Alberta just before the election, and it caused a bit of a, a firestorm. All of what I've described isn't illegal, uh, but it may sure uh, be unethical. But the question was about the money. And what we're finding is the elections commissioner started to look into this, and he was finding that there were corporate donations that were going into Callaway 
leadership campaign, which are banned by Alberta law, but instead it was being funneled through a handful of individuals who would then donate the maximum. So um, you would have, you know, 10 different people donating $4,000 each, but it wasn't their money. It was, in fact, uh, this company's money. And the in and out in the bank um, occurs almost simultaneously where there's a big deposit and then the money flows back out. As a result of that, there's over $200,000 in fines that the, Epic, or the, uh, the elections commissioner, Lauren Gibson, has done. Fast forward to Monday, what they're doing is removing Lauren Gibson as the elections commissioner. Um, that was in the legislation. They put in an omnibus bill, which includes all sorts of other items as well. The premier left the province down to Houston for the week, and they rushed through the legislation using uh, parliamentary closure. So the whole thing was passed by Thursday and got royal assent on Friday. So a very important piece of legislation that I believe is much more than simple administrative consolidation, but it's really firing the person investigating your party. Let me play again for our listeners what we played at the top of the hour. Here's Jason Kenney. The government is committed to consolidating redundant agencies, boards, and commissions. This is one whose creation we opposed. It made no sense. The uh, enforcement function of elections law will continue completely unimpeded. Uh, is anything that he says there wrong? Uh, um, it is an administrative shift. They did oppose it at the time. That's all consistent. Uh-huh. But when he says the investigations will continue, the legislation actually says it may continue. There's a big difference between the word will and the word may. Now, is the, do, we, do we do the Bill Clinton thing here? It all depends on what the meaning of the word is. Is uh, you know, like no, may I, can may can have different interpretations, right? It may continue or it may continue. Yeah, and and they say well the uh, the staff may continue with the investigation, but if you've just had your boss fired over this, are they going to continue along this line? Mm-hmm. Are they going to have the same budget, the same amount of resources to continue this investigation? We simply don't know. The new, the current elections uh, chief electoral officer, uh, Mr. Kessler, uh, can uh, appoint someone new in six months' time, and it could very well be Lauren Gibson, uh, but I doubt that it will be. I think they've made a clear uh, a, a clear uh, statement here. And so the commentary, if they had just come out and said, look, it, we opposed his hiring, we think he's a partisan NDP appointment who has been overly focused on the United Conservative Party, I think that would have been a more honest statement than just saying this is some administrative reshuffling. Okay. Dwayne, hold on, please. I'm going to ask you some more questions about this because uh, I, I, I just have a sense and again, because I've been receiving emails from listeners in other parts of the country, not just Alberta, about this story saying, what's it about? Uh, I heard ethics commissioner, so what's that about? And how divisive is this, is this issue in the province of Alberta? We're back to the issue of Bill 22 in Alberta. And uh, Dwayne Bratt is my guest, political science professor at Mount Royal University and the author of Canada, The Provinces, and the Global Nuclear Revival. And we'll have to talk to you about the book, Dwayne, if yeah. you do an interview on the book, because it's fascinating. But on this Bill 22 issue, so um, do you find this 
professionally? Because I hear a little edge in your voice. Do you yeah. find it professionally and personally disturbing? Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, I've been following this, uh, the issues around the 2017 UCP leadership race, and I think it is quite disturbing. And the way that they brought Bill 22 in, using closure, ha- doing it while the premier is out of the country, um, and uh, and putting it in an omnibus bill with pension changes and, and other pieces of legislation, uh, I find it to be undemocratic. Why are they doing it? You know, I, I think they're doing it um, because they're because of the uh, the investigation. Clearly, they don't like Lauren Gibson, um, and I think it is the investigation that he's been doing, which has brought up a lot of this uh, uh, dirty laundry. And uh, I, I think that's why this is not about cost savings. How divisive is this in the province of Alberta? This bill twenty two. How did this happen? How divisive is it? You know, how, I, how, how dividing, how divisive is it? I don't know. You know, I'll be interested to see polling data and whether most Albertans are focused on this or whether it's, you know, uh, the opposition, the media, people like myself. Uh, we simply don't know how widespread it is. But there's been all sorts of other, it's been a very busy month in Alberta politics, um, with the budget, the, the federal election, uh, the fair deal panel that, that, that Kenny is advocating. There was a battle over conscience rights for doctors. So there's been a lot of activity. This seemed to really galvanize things. Mm-hmm. And you can see it with uh, NDP leader Rachel Notley, the former premier of the province, and how many different sorts of techniques she's tried to use to get this Bill 22 on the agenda. So she deliberately got herself kicked out of the legislature or saying that the government was misleading, which is unparliamentary language, and she knew that. Um, then to request the lieutenant governor not to sign the bill, which would have created a constitutional crisis, and I, I think that was a bad idea. Uh, and then sending this letter to the ethics commissioner to ask her to intervene, and the ethics commissioner responded back by saying this really isn't her jurisdiction, but she did caution MLAs, that if they were in a conflict of interest, in other words, they were part of the investigation, they should not be voting on the bill. So uh, I know I'm going to see emails suggesting that, look, this is what happens when governments change. This is yeah. what happens when there's a really significant philosophical change in the, in the governments and the people decide we're tossing you out because you're too far to the left and we're yeah. bringing you back in on the right because this is the way we think and feel right now. So I'll be I'll be seeing that. Oh, absolutely, um, you will. And and you know we, we saw this when there were a bunch of changes to agency boards and commissions that were done uh, back in in August uh, around Alberta Health Services, Alberta Liquor and Gaming, various boards of governors of, of post secondary institutions. Uh, of course, you win an election, you bring in your own team. In the absence of the of the fines and the investigation of the UCP, in this case. I would accept that. I would agree with that. But when you have a sustained investigation, and by the way, there's a second investigation going on being led by the RCMP on a different matter, but also involving the UCP leadership race, that's what stinks to me. Um, and, it, and it was Notley's government 
that uh, that created the position of the elections commissioner, correct? Yes, and it was to divide sort of the chief electoral officer who conducts the elections, um, does public education, sets up polling stations, those sorts of things, and with a separate elections commissioner that would be the enforcement of those rules. That's why they separate. That was the reason. Um, and, but the, the Lauren Gibson, I will say, does have a track record. He was fired 10 years ago by a previous PC government um, as chief electoral officer, and the NDP brought him back on. So this is why the UCP at the time opposed his hiring and, and opposed the, the creation of this creation of this office. Okay. And, and the ethics commissioner essentially said, it's too late for me to get into this um Right. I mean, that, that was the fundamental message. Yeah. And, and but she did warn MLAs that if you're under investigation, uh, it'd be a conflict of interest to vote on this. One example that I will cite is a guy by the name of Peter Singh. Peter Singh owns a auto parts dealership in Calgary. His office was raided um, just before the election campaign began in, in the spring. And they took a bunch of uh, computers and, and hardware um, and he is under RCMP investigation involving voting irregularities during the race, involving passwords, voting kiosks, and things like that. Peter Singh subsequently gets elected as a UCP MLA. Peter Singh did not vote on this bill. Uh, that's the one person that I would say had a clear conflict of interest. But to add just another nuance, um, Brian Jean is no longer involved in active politics, but a guy by the name of Doug Schweitzer was the fourth UCP candidate uh, in the, in that race. Mm-hmm. Doug Schweitzer is the current justice minister in the province of Alberta, and he has been silent on this issue, uh, well, and that's raised some issues as well. As it says on the screen when they're breaking to commercial, more to come. Um, yeah. Dwayne, in about 45 seconds, and it deserves a lot more than that, can you give us uh, your sense and uh, your reaction to Trudeau announcing uh, that Seamus O'Regan's the new natural resources minister? <laughs> You know, the appointments of Or did Freeland, you just do that when you laughed? Yeah, I did. The appointments of Freeland and Carr, I think, were good appointments. Um, I think he put his best minister in charge of intergovernmental affairs, and he brought in a prominent Westerner from Winnipeg sort of as a special Western envoy. But Seamus O'Regan is seen widely as a, a political lightweight. At best. And yes, he's from Newfoundland. Yes, they have an oil sector. Yes, he's close personal friends with Trudeau. But it was not well received here. Okay, uh, political lightweight is kind of a nice way of describing his skill sets. I think. Well, someone described it as a drama teacher appointing a TV host oh my. to deal with pipelines. Oh my! Okay, Dwayne, thank you for the time. I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks. Thanks, Roy. Professor Dwayne Bratt from Mount Royal University. Michael Taub, and uh, Michael, as you know. Because uh, he's been on this program many times. He appears on uh, a lot of our chorus radio station programs. He's in demand because he's just a terrific interview. Syndicated columnist at Troy Media, op-ed writer, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. We don't like receiving compliments, do we, Michael? <laughs> no, I do appreciate <laughs> it. But no, by nature, we don't. I think, I don't know about you, Roy, but with me, compliments are fine. I have no issue with them, but I always feel I'm doing something wrong if I'm getting complimented <laughs> too much. You know, each time I say something like that, when I'm introducing a guest and I say that they're 
in high demand and they're excellent at what they do. I hear a little choking sound coming from the other side of the of the phone lines, but it's well deserved in your case. You uh, you're a great analyst and you give us lots to think about in uh, with with your columns and with your appearances on our programs. Well, I appreciate it. It's very kind to be the same. Thank okay. You. Yeah. Uh, except when you're at the zoo and you bring the hurricane along with you. But that's another okay, story. Okay, fine. I was at the zoo once. <laughs> so here we are with Mr. Trudeau uh, and his approach seems anyway publicly different since being tossed out of a majority government right. by Canadian voters. He's sounding less strident, but his cabinet selections suggest Trudeau 1.0 is still running the show. Would you agree? Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I do agree with you. Uh, you're right that he is more conciliatory, but again, you have to be realistic about it. He's running a minority government in 2019, whereas before he had a majority government. And the principle of running each government is different, and I don't have to explain it directly to Canadians, other than for a majority government, you control the narrative, you control all the messages, you control all the votes in the House of Commons. The way it is right now, obviously, Justin Trudeau has to work hand-in-hand hand with the opposition parties, issue by issue, vote by vote, to survive. So, yes, he obviously has to handle things very differently, and that also includes with a lot of the premiers who, as you said right off the top, Roy, are ideologically different than, they, than he is. Most of them are right of centre, and for that reason, obviously, the messaging is going to be very different, and the relationship has to be different. But, yeah, you're right. In terms of the cabinet, the cabinet itself is certainly more politicized than it was before. It's more Trudeau-friendly, and basically it's oriented towards survival more than anything else. Because although everyone's sort of talking about the fact that, oh, Justin Trudeau has a big minority, which he does, 157 out of 338 seats, and with that big minority, he only needs a few scattered votes here and there to ensure his legislation gets through. Everything will work perfectly. He builds a cabinet of people who are loyal to him or close friends or whatnot, and all of that will make things a lot easier. It certainly makes the prime minister and his senior staffers feel more comfortable. I think that's fair to say. But does it make it safer? Not necessarily. There have been lots of prime ministers, including my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, who have run minority governments, but they've run it from a position of strength, Roy, which means that they have the confidence in themselves, the powerful leadership abilities, great oratorial skills, policy knowledge, etc., to ensure that they can work with parties on the political right and on the political left to get things done. This is a very different prime minister. Just, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau is not his father. He's not other prime ministers before him, and he doesn't operate the same way as his predecessors do, including in a very politically charged environment that we currently have right now, where even the slightest misstep could push him into a cesspool that he can't pull himself out of or into a pitfall that he just can't drag himself out of, no matter how many ministers are helping him. Yeah. So he has lots of allies, he has lots of friends, he has lots of people around him that he trusts. And that's obviously good for him. It gives him a little bit of an advantage and some more confidence. But if he doesn't manage things properly over the next 18 to 24 months, which is historically how long minority governments run in this country, he may not even make it to that stage. Well, your, your column in the Washington Post, which is uh, headlined, Trudeau's new partisan cabinet could right. add to the challenges ahead. And I, and I, hear, I think I hear what you're saying is that it's, it's heavily weighted 
to toward Mr. Trudeau, and there isn't much in the way, or it isn't as much as there might be, to counterbalance, and we know from Trudeau's record over the four first four years of him as prime minister, he's yep. going to make mistakes, he yep. will create gaffes, and it will not probably take very long for another headline to, to cir- circulate across Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we obviously don't have to talk about the the whole sense of Trudeau's history here on a, this interview, but we know how many missteps he's done. We know right. how many mistakes he's made. Not just blackface, brownface, and other things, which were awful, but those obviously were related to the campaign and, and even pre-campaign. He's made a lot of policy errors, a, a lot of them. And he, in a position of, with the majority government, even though obviously he got slammed very heavily by the media, by individual Canadians, by opposition parties, he still could survive it pretty easily. In a minority government situation, and I work with Mr. Harper under one, you can't make mistakes, Roy. You really can't. You can have little slight errors that you can fix at a later date, but you have to be supremely focused on whatever it is the issue is and whatever the relationship you wish to build Mm -hmm. and whatever your end goal is. And Mm -hmm. if you deviate too much from that message, as my column points out, and other columnists throughout Canada pointed out, you're in big, big trouble, and you're not going to last very long. I know a lot of people are saying that Mr. Trudeau is safe for a long time because of his strong minority, but uh, you know what? Stephen Harper had a very small minority in 2006, the government I was a part of. 125, 126-odd MPs. That's all he had. Yet he ran it authoritatively, with intelligence, with character, with good policies, and with a good working relationship with all the other opposition parties, and actually made it one of the longest-lasting minority governments in the history of our country. Right. Right up there with Lester Pearson. So that's impressive. Michael Taub is with us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, syndicated columnist for Troy Media, op-ed writer, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. I mean, what would you say to him? To Joe Biden himself? Yeah, I mean, what what would you say to him? The problem is, you know, a lot of the people that are around him, very briefly, Roy, have less experience than he does. So I don't know how much he takes their counsel. We know that Biden has in the past listened to certain people, but we also know that when he was vice president under Barack Obama, it wasn't a big secret that he was kept under a leash because they were worried that crazy Uncle Joe was going to suddenly magically appear. Well, here he is on the stage, right? And he also said uh, there, there was only one woman black senator... Yeah, and 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 the second woman, female black senator, was standing beside him. I know, I know. The problem is that unfortunately, and look, a lot of people are talking about it from both from the fact that Joe Biden has just not held himself very well during this whole primary season, to the fact that the Atlantic magazine, as you probably noticed, Roy, had an article which discussed the fact that apparently he suffers from childhood stuttering, adult stuttering, and that has been a bit of a problem for him too. Even when you put all of it together, look, Joe Biden is obviously a formidable candidate in the sense that he's been around for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Democrats know him. He's been on major committees, both domestically and foreign policy-wise. He has an incredible amount of experience. Everyone gets that. But he says so many things that just throw him completely off track or off the narrative or overboard to the point where the Democrats can't reel him back in. This is yet another example, as you've just pointed out, of a person who just doesn't seem to be quote unquote all there oh, all the no. time. Punching and at it. Huge punching at it. For the Democrats. 
punching at it and punching at it when you're talking yeah. about domestic violence. I know. Well, let's come back to the, the Trudeau uh, government sure. and the cabinet. And uh, I, I do want to ask you about the impeachment uh, inquiry, so we have to move along here. But sure, sure. L- let me ask you about uh, your thoughts on Jim Carr. Battle, he's battling cancer. He's the uh, prime minister's special representative for the prairies. Seamus O'Regan right. is the natural resources minister. God only knows why. <laughs> And, uh, and, 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 then, and then we have the minister for, I, I have a hard time saying this with a straight face, the minister for the middle class. Yeah, that is so preposterous, Roy. I mean, I didn't initially even tackle it because it's just, it's, I'm sorry to say, How it's do you? utter stupidity. It really is. How can you just have a minister for one class of people? All classes of people and all Canadians are supposed to matter for a government, yet somehow they've isolated the middle class. And even worse, you probably saw in her first interview, which I think was for CTV, she couldn't even really define exactly what she was doing other than to say that hockey was a part of middle class living, which I'm sure that the view, uh, that, uh, sorry, the social on CTV was probably pretty shocked after the controversy they went under over one of their commentators making awful comments about hockey being sort of the realm for white boys, quote unquote. Yeah. But my God, this, this ministry is just a complete sham. And I, I think they'd be wise if they just gave up on you it. You know, but, if I were a bureaucrat and they were going to assign me to that ministry, I'd be asking for a reassignment in a hurry, because that, that's yeah. not a good career move. No, it really isn't. No, the Privy Council Office, the PCO, must be really worried about dealing with <laughs> stuff. But anyway, that's the that's the burden that the Liberals must bear. They've created it, so okay. we'll see how it goes. What about Reagan? Yeah, you know what? I worked with O'Regan um, when he was a CTV. Nice guy on a personal level, but he went. He was originally the Indigenous Services Minister, and he went to Natural Resources. I agree with you, Roy. I don't know why he's in the cabinet, other than the fact that he's a close friend with Justin Trudeau. We know that. But I think it is a huge risk involved here about a Newfoundlander working on a file that's very important to the West, Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, with a liberal government that has no Western representation and, most importantly, if you look up Mr. O'Regan's record, he's also been very critical of the natural resources file itself, mm-hmm. and this is what they put him on. I just don't get it. He's overmatched uh, in just about any, anything, really. And I don't mean to, again, I don't want to be cruel, but I would think no. that in, in, in most ministries, unless you were to have a, a, you know, a ministry for the adolescents, you've got the middle class, you might as well have a ministry for adolescents. He might be okay there. Yeah. Um, and uh, and any time Mr. O'Regan wants to challenge what I'm saying is welcome on the show. <laughs> what about um, what about uh, Jim Carr's role? Yeah, Jim Carr. I mean, is a former minister. He was obviously an important component or piece of the puzzle for Justin Trudeau in, in, during 2015 to 2019, the first cabinet. But he's not, you know because of health concerns, as you said, he's fighting cancer, which is right. unfortunate. Wish we him the very do. best. Yeah, we all do. Absolutely. Even if we ideologically are different than him or opposed to him, that's fine. Being the special representative for the prairies is fine. There's nothing wrong with that role. I think the issue that I had, maybe you've already talked about it, Roy, is that within 24 hours of Mr. Carr taking over this new role, he was actually slammed by his own government when he basically came out and said that, yeah, this government, his government, is willing to discuss issues like Bill C-69. You know, changes the whole nature of the environmental assessment process for pipelines, and there's a permanent ban against oil tankers. There's a whole bunch of things rolled into it. So he said, yeah, look, we're going to open the door and discuss things with the West. Although that's fascinating, Roy, because 24 hours later they came back and said, no, Bill C-69 is not on the table. That was um, Qualtro, Carla Qualtro, who came out and said that. 
just, I mean, for him, that's really a smack in the face to begin with, because here's a loyal minister trying to at least to sort of make some headway with the Western provinces, and they push back right away. It's it's not a good start. Undermine your own. Now, in the 45 seconds we have left, the Democrats, to me, sound like they're ready to wrap up things in the impeachment inquiry, at least on the House level. Can you give us your your, your very quick take on, on where things stand? Yeah, absolutely. No, they are ready to wrap things up. Everyone says it'll be sort of done by Christmas, which I think is merciful in many different ways. So that'll be good to see. Look, I stand by what I said with you and I've said with others for the last little while. We know how this scenario is going to play out. The Democratic-controlled right. House of Representatives is going to impeach him at some point, yep. and then he will be acquitted uh, by the GOP or Republican-controlled Senate. We okay. all know how this scenario is going to play out. Okay. But I think it's good that it's coming near the end, at least on the first stage, because Americans and Canadians and others can only take so much. Michael, always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. You bet. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. You too. Michael Todd. It's time for my good friend, our good friend, and former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford. And uh, the premier sent me, I guess it's on your blog, eh, premier? This one you sent me today. From middle class prosperity to Quebec propane shortage, we see what we have wrought. That's W-R-O-U-G-H-T. And it's peckford42.wordpress.com, peckford42.wordpress.com, where you can follow the premier on his blog. So, we have a minister. I have to, I I want to laugh, but I shouldn't. We have a minister for the middle class. Um, And you write, here we have an obsessively politically correct new federal government falling all over itself in presenting a new bloated cabinet with cozy friends and ideological soulmates getting all the hot spots in that once important, now irrelevant, August body. Are you saying, Premier Peckford, that it's irrelevant to have a minister for the middle class? How As a matter you? of fact, <clears throat> most of the cabinet now is irrelevant. Uh, as Donald Savoy points out in his new book, uh, you had him on your program a couple we of did. weeks ago. Yes, we did. And, and uh, I mean, this is so bad. I mean, this is so, this is so ridiculous political correctness that you know, on one hand, I laugh, and at the other hand, uh, you, you almost cry. A middle-class prosperity. And here's a government who appoints a minister to middle-class prosperity while they pass two bills which eliminated middle-class jobs in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, not to say all over Canada indirectly. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth at the same time, besides which the whole idea of a of a of a minister for middle class prosperity is so ridiculous. When are we going to have one for low class uh, poverty? When are we going to have one for high class prosperity? When are we going to have one for what next in this charade of of cabinets? I mean, to me, Canadians should be absolutely uh, you know dismayed at what's going on in this country. It it, it speaks to a a, a level of, of competence that's so low. And so adolescent that uh, I fear for our country over the next four years. Well, I like the use of the word adolescent, and that's what I uh, what I was thinking when I when I heard of this this title, Minister for Middle Class Prosperity. And and then when the Minister for Middle Class Prosperity was trying to explain what the middle Minister of Middle Class Prosperity actually does, the Minister for Middle Class Prosperity couldn't do it. No, she doesn't even know what she's minister of. 
She she hasn't defined how what could middle you? class means. How could you look? If somebody made you the minister for middle class prosperity, how could you possibly define what it was about? What do you what, what do you do? What's exactly. the job? What's the job description? Well, well it's, it's two and where's the need? Here. There's two mistakes here. The prime minister should never have even thought about. I mean, how could you ever think about having a a, a portfolio like this? Number one, number two, for anybody to accept it shows that they're no better than the prime minister. Um, so now. We have the uh, province of Quebec, Premier Legault, who decries pipelines from Alberta. Doesn't mind the money from Alberta. Uh, and, yeah, I know people say, well, the money's from Ottawa. No, the money goes from Alberta to Ottawa, and that is, I was going to say funneled, but that will take us back to Sponsorgate, delivered to uh, the province of Quebec. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> It really is rather. Uh, it makes you want to cry and laugh at the same time, doesn't it? Really. Well, I mean, it's you look so at the big picture. It makes here you... is, uh, you know, all in the same period of time where you know Quebecers are regaling against any more pipelines to bring stuff that they need from Alberta or Saskatchewan or the West, uh, and then you know, in a three to four day strike uh, of CN Rail, uh, the uh, the province of Quebec is on its knees as it relates to supply of propane, and the, the Premier of Alberta rightly points out that uh, we can solve that for you in no time and do it more safely than you're doing it now. Just allow a pipeline to go ahead and, and for the Prime Minister to exercise his authority on the Constitution and see that it's done. Stunning, isn't it? It really is, it is. stunning. And really, to, to, when, you, when you consider the Premier Legault would actually get up and say, we only have a couple of days of propane left, and, and now we're, we're, we're rushing some trains... Yes. To, to Quebec in order to give, provide the province with enough propane to get them through, I don't know how long, a couple more days. Hopefully the strike will be over. Maybe Trudeau's, the Trudeau government will legislate them back to work. Who knows? But it just doesn't seem, you know what, every dog sled needs a lead dog. And it just seems right now there's a dog sled team and they're all pulling in opposite directions. Nobody knows where they're going. They're all just, they're all just pulling and the sled is on its side and about to totally capsize. Well, what an abysmal uh, uh, situation we have in this country where one of the largest provinces who opposes a pipeline is deficient in propane because of rail cars. I mean, the whole thing just smacks of complete lack of leadership and complete incompetence by both the federal government and the leadership of this country. Of course, Mr. Scheer and the, and the leader of the NDP and everybody else who's a leader in Canada should be out uh, criticizing this and saying, we need some strong leadership in this country to get on with building our country with the resources we have. Well, we I, I, have asked, so, I asked Mr. Scheer to be on the show today, but he was too busy doing something else. I wanted him to come on and talk about the uh, the situation at York University. He may have been. He fire was firing two people, so maybe that was what he was doing. But uh, I, you know, last minute requests. I get it. Sometimes they can't be fulfilled, and that's the way it is. Well, but I don't know about that, Roy. I really don't know about that. I mean, I, I appreciate you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, and I should do perhaps. But all I know is is that you know the country is falling apart from the point of view of any leadership being shown. Uh, you know, on this whole file of the propane, on this whole file of a cabinet that is just absolutely ridiculous. By the way, I heard in the last 24 hours, one, that Mr. Card, a so-called special representative of the prime minister, no cabinet uh, authority, by the way, he's not in cabinet, he's just a special rep of the prime minister, said that they were prepared to consider uh, changes to Bill 69. Then I hear his leader, 
the prime minister say, no, 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 we're not changing Bill 69. Yeah. Well, in other words, what these two statements mean is it confirms what I have said several days ago and what many other people have said. This is a complete and absolute charade and a slap in the face to the West. Well, and, and they kneecapped Jim Carr. Totally. But, I mean, anybody who's been around politics and has watched what's happening in Ottawa over the last four or five years knew this was going to happen. This is just a token, a tokenism, you know, window dressing, not even a minister. I and mean, if you're going to do this, you might as well give him ministerial authority. But in any case, look, if he wasn't kneecapped by the prime minister it, when the prime minister came out in the last few hours to say we're not going to change Bill 69, he would have been kneecapped by the Minister of Environment, by the bureaucrats in the Department of Environment, by the Minister of Energy and the bureaucrats in the Department of, uh, of Energy, because they're the ones, they're the creators and authors yeah. of Bill 69 and Bill 48, and they wouldn't have allowed for any changes to happen in any case. Premier, about 30 seconds left. Your fellow Newfoundlander, Seamus O'Regan, is the Natural Resources Minister. Well, he has, he's become so underwhelming, so undistinguishable, in that cabinet for the last three or four years, you know, I don't think that the energy industry has been provided with what one would classify as any knowledge of energy whatsoever. I don't think the, 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 the fellow knows anything about energy. Uh, meanwhile, he, he didn't distinguish himself in any of the portfolios he's had so far. He's a friend of the prime minister's, a close friend of the prime minister's, and this is just a cozy reward and will do nothing to advance energy priorities in this country. In a massively important portfolio. By the way, I can always provide the benefit of the doubt when you're on with me because I know you'll follow with something <laughs> to correct me. <laughs> How true. How true. Premier, always great talking to you. Thank you for the time. Thank you, sir. Good to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who gives us his time. Peckford42.wordpress.com. Headline was an Ontario teen on life support, vaping. Boy, is that concerning. And, uh, and deeply so. Compass study on vaping includes more concerning statistics. My guest is Dr. Gigi Osler. She is from Winnipeg, a surgeon, immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Osler, thank you very much for your time. Given the, the increasing popularity of vaping, no real surprise that a teenager, and I'm saying specifically a teenager, uh, anywhere in Canada, in this case it was Ontario, would be placed on life support or in a very, very difficult situation health-wise, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is an important conversation for your listeners to hear uh, and for especially the teenagers to hear. I want to be clear. Vaping is the new smoking. The evidence is mounting, and I believe it is important for everyone to understand, particularly teenagers who are vaping in increasing numbers, to understand uh, that vaping is the new smoking. And we know that in this country, annually, 40,000 people approximately, maybe more than that now, die of smoking-related illnesses. So this is very, very serious business, and it's not fun and games, and you're not eating apples, even though you may be tasting apples, I'm told. I've never vaped. But it, you, 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 it, what you're doing is creating the environment for some very serious health issues to trail you throughout life and maybe cost you your life. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the advertising and promotion and marketing, even though it's not supposed to be, is appealing to a youth demographic. Much of this occurs online through social media, and much of the messaging that's given to them is that it's not harmful, it's not like smoking, it's socially acceptable. And you mentioned that 17-year-old boy, and I want to say, first of all, that our hearts, my heart, the CMA's heart, goes out to that family. Because this was a previously healthy 17-year-old boy Mm -hmm. who had been vaping, who then suffered a life-threatening lung injury and had to be put on life support. No parent wants to see that. And that is the result of vaping. Now, could have been other substances in the vape. They don't know exactly what it was, but it was the vaping that's being attributed to his illness. And so... No, I do want to say thank you for having this conversation. This is a new public health crisis for the youth. You know, we see, and the, you mentioned the Compass study, more teenagers are vaping between 27 and 2018. The increase in teenagers was 74% in one year. Vaping went up 74%. And the new Compass study is showing that vaping is a predictor of subsequent cigarette use. So vaping is now this um, on-ramp to smoking, to cigarette smoking, and it would undo decades and decades of the awareness that um, has been done to show that cigarette smoking is harmful to health. It's a killer. It's a killer. You're right on point to say this is where we need to start paying attention and this is where we need immediate federal action. What do you want the federal stop. government to do? Well, we've been having conversations with the government. The government has known about the health risks associated with vaping. But what this new government can do, what the federal government, what the Minister of Health has the power to do, is issue something called an interim order. Mm-hmm. Now, they can do that under their powers through the Department of Health Act. What that can do is put vaping, so e-cigarettes, put them under the same restrictions that tobacco products have. It's the fastest way to get some change now because we're already seeing Canadians, young Canadians, being harmed. All right. Dr. Osler, I I want to continue this conversation with you. I'm going to set something up for next weekend, either with you or Dr. Buckman, or you'll have you both on and and speak to this issue in greater detail. I think it deserves that. It needs that. So I'm going to set that up with your uh, media people at the CMA. And I thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. And please keep up this important conversation. We will. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Dr. Gigi Osler is the past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.